Uh, we're in Act 17. And as you guys are turning there, the sermon tonight is called Wise as Serpents, Harmless as Doves. Wise as Serpents, Harmless as Doves. This, of course, comes from Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus is sending out his 70 disciples to preach the gospel and to heal people and cast out demons, and he's empowering them. And as he's giving his instructions, he says that they should beware of men because they're going to, like, arrest them and beat them. And within that instruction, he says that they should be wise as serpents, but harmless or, or innocent as doves. And so we're going to see Paul... Uh, I, I know I've been talking about that instruction that Jesus gave the 70 a lot, actually more than I was planning on in this series, because it's so applicable. We see the apostles over and over again following the instructions that Jesus gave the apostles when he sent out the 70. So we see it again here where Paul is, uh, he's going to be as wise as a serpent uh, and gentle or harmless or innocent as a dove. And so before we get into the passage, I've kind of broken these two things up in a couple of different sections. So we're going to talk about wise as serpents, uh, and I've broken that up into two parts of recon and action. And then we're going to talk about harmless or innocent as doves. So the first part of, uh, I'm just going to give you all the points, and then you guys can just apply them as, as we read through the, the passage tonight. So number one in recon, being wise as a serpent, get the lay of the land. So I've seen, um, actually these first three, I've seen YWAM does this very well. They'll do prayer walks, they'll walk around and kind of get the feel for an area, get the lay of the land, right? Wait, sorry, when you say recon, this is part of being wise as a serpent, okay? So you start by getting the lay of the land. Number two, assess the people and the mindset. So you're going to observe people, you're going to be looking at how they're acting, what they're thinking about, what they're into. And so that's number two of the recon. Number three is read about the place, or in Paul's case tonight, read the plaques, look at the art. Look, what are they, who are they honoring? Who are they building statues to? Who are they writing plaques about? And, and look at that. The other part of Wise as a Serpent is the action, which is where the recon is applied. Okay, so you're going to speak to those who give you an ear. All these things we're going to read, Paul does all these things. Speak to those who give you an ear. Speak the truth and reason from the scriptures, as we've talked about the past few weeks, as Paul uh, often does, he reasons from the scriptures. So speak the truth, uh, always speaking the truth in love, of course. And uh, number three in the action section is to speak their language. So connect the recon to the action and speak about things that make sense to your audience. Know your audience. Understand where they're coming from and what's important to them. Now, moving into harmless or innocent as doves, I'm going to talk about like three things, but they're wrapped up in the first and in, in, in two things. So first, everything I'm going to say is wrapped up in this: patience, patience, patience. And this includes uh, not speaking down to people as if they're stupid or lesser or less important or less special than you, not speaking down to them. Number two, do not go in guns blazing, right? But be gentle. This is part of being harmless as a dove. For instance, don't go in and say, everything you believe is a lie and you're going to hell. 
even if that's true, uh, that's going in guns blazing and not being harmless as a dove, not being gentle. Uh, that's the truth, not in love. That's just blurting out things, and, and you're you're not having tact, and that's part of being harmless as a dove and being wise as a serpent, right? So be gentle. Number three, do not get defensive, because as Jesus warned his disciples, and we see throughout Scripture, when you speak the truth, there's two types of people, those who receive it and want more, and then those who hate you for it and want to kill you because of it. So don't get defensive when they call you names or lie about you or set up false witnesses against you or beat you in the synagogues, as Jesus warns. And um, finally, in this section, everything that I've said in this section can be summed up in this, is to be loving. Um, again, speaking the truth in love, not getting defensive, but loving the people who are coming against you, not speaking down to them, but kind of reasoning on their same level. Love them, even while telling people about the hard things, right? Again, not going in guns blazing, still saying the truth, like, everything you believe is a lie and, you, like, you're on your way to hell, like... Still saying that, but it's how you say it, not going in uh, all crazy. So those are all the points of the sermon. We can get into it now, and you'll you'll see as as I go on how it applies. Acts 17, verse 16. They just left Berea. Paul is waiting for Silas and Timothy there. He's sent instructions for them to join him, and he is in Athens. Verse 16 says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. The city was given over to idols. And that is why we're looking at the snowman. This is Athens. Uh, I was in Athens in the wintertime, so I thought it was applicable here. Did you make that I did not make it. I stumbled upon it and thought it was great, so I photographed it. But given over to idols... It, even still, when you walk through the ancient part of Athens, there are statues of gods and temples to gods everywhere you go. In fact, just over the snowman's shoulder here, you'll see a temple back there, and that is a temple to the nymphs, I think. You climb this hill, and there's all kinds of stories about seeing fairies and nymphs in these woods. So the, the wood nymphs temple is just right there. So everywhere you look, you're just going to see statues of gods and goddesses, and it is. It's overrun with idol worship. Even still, you see remnants of it. This is a marketplace that, even in the marketplace, there will be temples to gods and goddesses, and, and there will be, we're going to see later in Acts, there's going to be an, an idol maker, like the guy who is actually making all the idols. This is very commonplace in, in that time. This is a massive temple to Zeus, and this is sort of like right in the middle of the ancient city. Not much of it is still standing, but you can see the foundation, and we'll see another picture of it from uh, a little ways away, and you'll see kind of the scope of how big this massive temple was. But a really big part of their culture and everyday life was just idol worship. So we see Paul here. He's provoked. He's He's got this weird mixture of emotions of sadness and and anger and and loving them, but also like, oh, this is he's provoked. So, going on in verse seventeen, it says, therefore, right, because he's provoked, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. 
Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. So here again we see Paul is speaking to those who give him an, an ear. He can go to the synagogue, they will welcome him in and hear what he has to say. He reasons from the scriptures with them, but he's also going into the marketplace and, and the language here, he's going into the marketplace daily with those who happen to be there. Just anyone who would give him an ear, he's telling them about Jesus. And just a little bit about the Epicureans and the Stoics here. I'm not going to completely unpack their philosophies, but just know that the reason these people are mentioned and, and their significance is that they are moral people and they would consider themselves like good people. And we hear that a lot in our culture, right? Like I'm a moral person, like I'm a, I'm a good person. And the funny thing about that is a lot of the time those types of people will look at Christians or, or people who read the Bible and come to Bible studies uh, and they'll call us self-righteous. And the funny thing about that is we are not self-righteous. Like, the only reason God sees us as righteous is because we have faith in Jesus and we receive the righteousness of God through that. And the funny thing is, like, that, that phrase self-righteous means somebody who just, like, they're like a goody two-shoe or they think they're better than others. But when you think about the actual phrase self-righteous, it's, it's somebody who declares themselves, like you declare yourself righteous. Like that's what self-righteousness actually is. And so the funny thing about that is people who say, well, I'm a good person. Like that's literally the definition of self-righteous. You are declaring yourself good. You are putting yourself on the judgment seat and saying, yep, I deserve to be wherever God is. I judge myself righteous. And it's a dangerous place to be because on judgment day, when Jesus sits and judges every action that has ever been, has ever taken place, like you're not going to sit on a throne and stare in a mirror and say, yep, I deserve to be here. Jesus is going to put you in your place, and he is going to rise. If you have faith in him, he's going to rise you to uh, his place, and, and you'll receive the righteousness of God and, and glory. So that is sort of where these people are. There's these sort of self-righteous, we're good people, we're into morals. These people also love and seek knowledge. It's a big part of their ph philosophy that the more you knowledge you collect, the better person you are, and, and knowledge is sort of this almost like divine thing. Like the more knowledge you can get, the, the better and more godly you are. So that's important because as we see these people want to hear it more from Paul, that's sort of the reason. And it explains it more as we continue in verse 18. It says um, that these Epicureans and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Right? They're, they're calling him names. But again, he doesn't get defensive. He doesn't freak out. He just continues in his ministry. Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean, right? They're seeking that knowledge. And they also, though, they, they give him their ears. So Paul is like, all right, like, I'll go with you. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I got to say. And so they take him up to the Areopagus. This is translated 
the Hill of Aries, or we call it now Mars Hill. And the hike up to the Areopagus to Mars Hill, it's about a 20-minute walk. And there was really no reason to go up to the Areopagus, which was right next to the Acropolis. But there's no reason to go up there except to worship. There's nothing but temples up there or to hear people talking about their gods or goddesses or, or experiences. So they're bringing him up to like basically like their ch- style of church. And this is – that's the Acropolis, which is up on a hill. Again, kind of a 20-minute hike up this hill. You can see it from everywhere in the ancient part of Athens. Everywhere you go, it's like lit up. It's the main part of the city. It's the main place of worship for the ancient city. And where I'm standing here is actually right up those steps. There's a plaque there that says, this is where Paul the Apostle preached to the Athenians in Acts 17. So I sat here and I, I read this passage and I opened up my Bible and read this passage and kind of kind of looked around and it's just like, wow, it's cool because it's like, again, we don't worship these random non things like real people, real places. Paul stood here and preached to the Athenians. So as uh, you are standing there, this is the view from looking the other way. Obviously a lot of new buildings, but you still see remnants of the ancient world here. A uh, little like market and living area here. So you can see that it was it was still a pretty big city. Now there's it's even bigger, but even back then it was a big culture. Uh, this is on the walk up to the Areopagus. They had these theaters, and even though there's a plaque there, we don't really know. They could have brought him to a place like this. This is this is still on Mars Hill. It's just a little farther down the hill, so they could have brought him here. Like everybody sits and they want to hear him. Easily could have been something like that. Uh, this is inside the Acropolis. Again, this is just to show you the scope of this, the temples and the fact that the city was so overrun by idol worship. These were, these are massive structures. Now we kind of walk down downtown and we see these massive buildings and we're like, yeah, no big deal. It's like everyday life. For them, it, it's it's amazing for people to come from their rural, rural areas or just out of town somewhere to see these temples is like, wow, like this was not a normal thing. And all of these structures were carved out of marble and made by hand. So this is a, another temple to, I think, the nymphs are... <laughs> Maybe Athena. Is Athena a scaffolding? they trying to keep things together? They are, yeah. They're, they're cleaning it, and then they're actually putting pipe in some of the pillars, and then actually reconstructing some of... They'll find the pillars and, like, put them back up. So they're actually rebuilding some of it. But you can see uh, some of the detail. Um, not really. It's kind of blurry. Oh, but really those pillars are actually, like... Gods, those are the nymphs. Yeah, the, 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 I think they are the nymphs. I forget which I nymphs, but... That <laughs> yeah, yeah, I nice. I know that one. I'm like, I know that one. Nice. Again, this is just looking from the uh, Acropolis. You can see the Temple of Zeus from... Uh, that's the picture I showed you earlier. With Like I said, you can see the big foundation. You can see how big that temple was. There's oh, nothing but pillars. Wait, yeah. So that little thing, that's the pillars. Right there. So that's like the tallest one. That is a, that's a big one. It used to be that whole That rectangle. entire rectangle was just pillars and pillars and pillars. And then in the middle was like a statue of Zeus. Okay. Yeah. So 
it was uh, standing up on this hill. You're just seeing all these amazing structures dedicated not to anything but just completely false made up gods. So obviously you can understand a little bit where Paul is coming from. Like, God, these people are like, man, I really, I'm provoked. I want to say something. I want to help these people. But this is where Paul is supposedly standing, looking at the Acropolis behind the people listening to him, uh, looking down on the city, seeing all these temples and all these people moving around. And he is giving this sermon that we're about to read from this place. So they bring him up to the Areopagus. They give him their ear. We want to hear what you have to hear. Verse 21 says, For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. Luke records something here that we've been talking about for the past few weeks, and that is the spirit of the place. And this sort of spirit sounds pretty familiar to the world we live in, right? Like, anything new equals amazing. Like, what's new? What's exciting? And that is what they're into. They want to hear new stories. They want to hear about new gods. They want to hear, again, they want to hear all more knowledge. They're just trying to fill their brains with things and fill their lives with other things because these people were also very much seeking pleasure these Epicureans and the Stoics, specifically the Epicureans. But uh, verse 22 says, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, and, and here what we're about to see is the action of all that he's been observing, all that he's been looking for, reading, right? He, he, all of this recon is going to like go into action now as he speaks this sermon. And it's all been leading up to this point. And God has kind of been preparing his heart and preparing him to speak this sermon. And the sermon that I'm about to read right here, it's a little bit different from the other ones that we've heard so far. This sermon is taught mostly to people who know like almost nothing about the one true God. All the other sermons have, have pretty much been to Jews and Gentiles who, who know a lot about the Jews. And he's been kind of like speaking a lot to, to them and other Gentiles who don't know that much, but they knew something will get saved also. But this sermon is like his only audience is, is people that know nothing about the God of the Bible. So where do you start in that situation? How do you preach that sermon where you're not, you're not reaching from Old Testament or some, some scripture that they've heard of and then building on that and saying, look, Jesus fulfilled this thing. Instead, it's like, these people know nothing except for that. Like, that's all they know. Uh, where do you start? So where he does start is in verse 22. He, he stands up and says, men of Athens, and I'm just going to read through this sermon. We're going to go to verse 31. Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, 
since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries and their dwellings, so they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So, that's Paul's sermon. And, again, if you notice the sort of list that I started with, right? The the wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove, he implements that. This is a, this is a very tricky, like serpent-like wisdom in, in his approach, but he's also being very gentle and innocent in, in how he is applying some of these like really massive truths. He walked around the city, he got the lay of the land, he assesses the people in their mindset, realizing like what they're into, what they're thinking about, like, oh wow, they're they're religious. They're look, they even care about the unknown God. He reads the plaques, he's researched the people, he even seems to quote one of their poets here. If you noticed one of the one of the phrases he said is in quotes after he says your your poet says this. Right? So he's done a little bit of research. He knows about the people. And then he puts that into action. He speaks to those who want to hear about it. But he speaks their language. He speaks things that they would understand. They are into all these gods and goddesses. And so he starts there. He connects with them there. But then he speaks the truth. He, he doesn't just leave it there like, oh, you guys know the unknown God. Just follow that one. He doesn't leave it there. He continues to teach them who that is. And he is harmless in his approach, right? He's very patient with them. He doesn't speak down to them. He doesn't go in. He does say that God's going to judge and you guys are doing it wrong, right? But the way he approaches it is in a loving and gentle way. And he doesn't get defensive as they soon are going to start mocking him. He doesn't like freak out about it. So that was the list that we started with. And we see Paul is acting in that way. But before we sort of finish off the chapter, I just kind of want to go through and look at some of the points that Paul made in this sermon. He, again, he starts by connecting with them and talking about the gods that he observed and the, this, this plaque to the unknown God. And then he starts after that, after he connects with them, right? He starts at creation. And he says, God made the world and everything in it, right? And then he says, God gave life and everything good in life to everything that has life, right? That's one of his points. That's, that's number three. Jesus says in Matthew 5, I'm um, actually going to turn there real quick. Matthew 5, verse 43, says, You have heard 
that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The point is that God gives good gifts to both his people and non-believers, right? And we see Paul use this in, in Acts 14. He says very much the same thing, that, that God gave witness to them by giving them rain, by giving them food, by giving them good things, right? So God gave life to them, and he continues to give them good gifts. Number four, God made mankind, therefore mankind is his. And that's in verse 26 there. He says, he's made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And then he goes on to say in verse 27, or uh, verse 28, rather, that uh, we're his offspring. Now, the interesting thing about this offspring thing, some of your Bible might say that we are the children of God here. This is a different word in the Greek than everywhere else where it talks about us Christians being children of of God, because not every human is a child of God in the biblical sense. The, the word here implies that we are his, like, nation. We are his His people. We're, we're his belonging, right? So because of that, because he made us, we're his, and therefore we should worship him. That's what Paul says in verse 27, that he has determined in pre their pre-appointed times and boundaries and their dwellings. So this is talking about, like, Seasons and the sun coming up at a different time over there than it does over here. God's set that up. He's uh, set their boundaries, right? In, in the creation story, it says that God divided the land with water and he, he, he raised that up, right? So he, he um, determined the boundaries and their dwellings. He set up the, the rivers and the lakes, which is where um, people tend to live around clean living water. So he set these things up in verse 27 so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him, right? So we ought to worship our creator. And he, he's saying that creation is a witness uh, of God. And that's why he, he uses that language in Acts 14, that creation is a witness for our creator as God. And because of creation, we should seek after God. The purpose of creation and the, the purpose of all the good gifts that God continues to give us even when we don't believe, is to point us to God, to make us want to search him out and want to know him more. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, Jesus says, if you seek, then you will find, right? If you're seeking, truly seeking who God is, like you're going to find him. I truly believe that. And Jesus says it, seek and you will find, right? Ask and it'll be given to you. And the point is that he's saying is, Creation's been your witness. Like, you could have been worshiping your creator, rather you're creating things to worship that you made. <laughs> like, that, this isn't going to work. Each life, every moment, and each thought is only thanks to our creator. In verse 28, it says, For in him we live and move and have our being. Right? So each life, every movement... Every thought, it's all thanks to God. 
we can't say, I willed myself into being. I gave myself life. No, God breathes life into every living thing. We belong to God, but we can be more than his belonging, right? He says that we're, again, his offspring. Elsewhere, where that Greek word is used in the Bible, it says like nation or people. Like we are his, we're his people. We're his people because he made us. But we can move from being just his belonging to his adopted child. And, And that is the other word for when it talks about children of God. The other Greek word is not just a nation or a people or a belonging or a, a, a person belonging to a certain nation, rather being a child of God the way that First John talks about it, or being a child of God the way that Jesus talked about it that we just read in Matthew 5 or in Romans chapter 8 when it says that if we suffer as Christ did, then we are, we're sons of God. We're, we're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, Romans 8 talks about. And where, when it's talking about being children of God in that sense, it uses this other word that actually means like you're the heir. You're, you're an actual child. You're not just a nation or a people that belongs to a nation, but you're an actual child of God. You are his adopted child when you have faith in Jesus and his death and burial and resurrection and his, his godhood. He goes on to say that all other gods are false. <laughs> and uh, he does not shy away from that point, even though he's in a place that worships all other gods. He does not shy away from this point. In verse 29, he says, Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art in man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. All other gods are false gods. And now God calls, right? He commands all men everywhere. Not some people from everywhere. Not all people from a certain place, and, and these are these are very specific teachings, right? We we hear nowadays a lot of people saying like, or or even now, like the Jews, the Israelites will still say, God's word is like only for Israelites, and that's what they were saying in, in Paul's time. It's only for the Israelites. It's for all people of a certain area, and now we hear people saying, well, it, when the Bible says all, it means like all areas, right? So some people from each area. That's not, this is like one of the clearest places where Paul lays it out very, very clearly that God commands all men everywhere to repent. And to, to quote the angel declaring Jesus's birth, right? We're, we're in Christmas time. This is good tidings of great joy for all people. That is what Jesus came for, to repair that relationship, to give a way for man to have right relationship with God. If you turn to 1 John, keep your finger in Acts as we are getting ready to finish that chapter, but 1 John chapter 2. The Apostle John here, the entire letter, he's an old man in, in, in this letter, and he's he's writing with like the father heart of God, so he uses this language and 
First John chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1. He says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Okay? So, Jesus died for the sins of the entire world. And this word propitiation, it means atoning sacrifice or, yeah, atoning sacrifice. And what atonement means is, literally, it means covering. And atonement is a covering. So, if I can quickly give you a history of something called the Day of Atonement. This was a really, really big deal in the Old Testament in Jewish culture. In fact, such a big deal that the Day of Atonement, they just called it the day. Like, it's the day. This is the biggest day of Jewish culture, the Day of Atonement. And what happens, if I could quickly summarize, they have these two goats, right? And, and the wages of sin, the Bible tells us, is death. Like, if you have ever sinned, if you've ever done anything wrong, you deserve to die and go to hell. That's what we all deserve. And that's what the Israelites deserve, too. So God set up this ritual, this rite, to make sure that their sins were paid for. And it was this symbol of God's forgiveness for their people. And so they would take these two goats, and one would be sacrificed, because blood had to be spilled for sins. Blood has to be spilled for sins. That's the wage of sin, right? So one would be killed. The other goat was called a scapegoat. And the priest would put his hands on the goat and symbolizing all of, to use the language of, I think it's Leviticus uh, 16, all of the sins of the assembly of Israel, right? All of the assembly of Israel, all of their sins would be transferred to the scapegoat and then they would chase the scapegoat out of out into the wilderness, symbolizing that's how far your sins are from God now. He has forgotten your sins. You are forgiven of your sins. And the interesting thing about that phrasing, the assembly of Israel is, if you didn't want to be part of the assembly, if you're like, you guys are weird, I'm going to get out of here, I'm going to go live over there. You were not in the assembly of Israel anymore. You were not covered by that atoning sacrifice. Right? You were not a part of that ritual, you're not a part of that rite, so you were not forgiven under the old covenant. And, and the reason that I'm talking about this is because we're talking about children, like we're his offspring, we're like his people, but we can be his children. There is an if, and even if you read in, uh, we read in Matthew 5 there, talking about the sufferings, right? And it says, so that you can be children of God. Right? And First John talks a lot about being a child of God. And there are these, this is what a child of God does. This is how a child of God acts. In Romans 8, I mentioned, it says, if you suffer with Christ. Right? So you are a part of these things when you have faith in Jesus. Romans 5 says that through faith in Jesus, we are given access into the grace of God. So when we believe in everything that Jesus said, everything that he did, we believe that God became a man, lived a perfect life, died as a sacrifice, as a propitiation, as an atoning sacrifice, our atoning sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, then he rose 
from death. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered Satan and even the wrath of God for those who believe on him. And when you believe those things, and then he ascended into heaven, right? When you believe in him, then you are under that covering of atonement. That's the big if. It's not for all the world is saved because of what Jesus did on the cross. No, he died for all of the sins, and you're under that covering when you have faith in him. So, do you love Jesus? Do you have faith in Jesus? Do you Are, are you a part of God's family? Are you under that covering? Are you under the wing of, of God? If not, I know you all are, but Paul says, if not, right? Number nine, I have, then God will judge. He's going to judge by Jesus. In verse 30, he says that these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he ordained. This is, of course, Jesus. He's going to judge everybody by Jesus. And when you stand in front of that judgment seat, Jesus is going to say, this one's under my covering, if you have faith in him. And some will say, well, like, I, I knew who you were, and I didn't, like, I did whatever I wanted, but I knew whoever, I, I know your name, and Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of evil. I never knew you. I never knew you. Knowing about Jesus, knowing Jesus' name does not save you. As we continue here in verse 32, finishing off chapter 17, it says, uh, And when they heard of the resurrection, right? So he, he tells them that Jesus raised, he was raised from the dead. They heard of the resurrection of the dead. Some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So some, again, make fun of Paul. He doesn't care. He's secure in what God thinks of him. He doesn't care what other people are thinking of him. And some, though, they say, okay, like, great. Like, we want to hear more about this. And Anna spoke about this, about the spirit of Greece, if you guys were there that week. She talked about how even if people disagreed with you, they were like, wow, like, they would have these long debates and conversations, and they were like, this is great. This is so fun. Like, let's do this again. Let's, let's, let's hang out tomorrow, and we can talk more. I want to hear more of what you have to say, even if they disagreed with you. And so the reason I'm saying that is because every other time in Paul's ministry, when someone's like, this is amazing, I want to hear more. He would stay an extra couple of days, or he would stay an extra week, or he'd stay an extra month or a couple of months, or he would stay an extra year. But here, there's a little bit of a, a difference, right? They say they want to hear more. Verse 32, we will hear you again on this matter. Verse 33, so Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him. However, some men joined him. These people want to hear more, so he leaves. But some do follow. Some do believe. Among them, Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Demarius, and others with him. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. So we'll visit Corinth next week. But my point in, in saying this is sometimes people like these religious people right, in Athens, 
they want to keep learning and learning. And they have more questions than they're sure. I just want to like gain knowledge. They worship knowledge. And there is a point where you need to just leave. Like <laughs> I've said everything that you need to know to believe. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to go now. And you need to listen to the spirit to know when that time is. It's, it's hard to know, but it's important. And I say this because sometimes just like Anna was saying, even if they disagreed, like, great, let's hear more because they worship knowledge. They just want to keep learning and learning and gaining knowledge and putting stuff in their head. And they're like really obsessed with that. But knowledge, again, knowing Jesus's name won't save you. Knowledge does not save you. There's this thing called Gnosticism back then, and it still exists, but it's the same thing. It's, it's worshiping knowledge. The more I know, the better I am. And let me just say that not all knowledge is good. Not all knowledge is useful. There is such a thing as useless knowledge. Not all knowledge is desirable. Okay? And knowledge will never save you. Only Jesus can save you. So we put our faith in him and that grants us access into the grace of God. And we can look forward to that day of being glorified with him and not just try and cram a bunch of stuff. And I'm, I know I always encourage you to study and, and really get to know the Bible because this is how we get to know the thoughts and ideas of God and we get to know him more and that relationship can be deepened. But I don't say that just so you can put a bunch of stuff in your head and worship knowledge. I say that so you can know God. We talked a couple of weeks ago about that passage that says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And it has this juxtaposition of, if you think you know anything, you don't know anything the way you should know it. But if you love God, then you are known by God, right? And so the goal is not to cram knowledge into our brain, but to know God. And that's why we search the scriptures. That's why we want to be able to reason from the scriptures. And that's why... Uh, we study the Bible because we want to know his thoughts, not because we want to be right, not because we want to be puffed up and smart and know all this stuff, but because we want to know God on a deeper level. So with that, I'll close in prayer and uh, we can have a little cookies and fellowship and eggnog. Eggnog makes fellowship better. <laughs> um Dear God, I thank you so much for uh, your word and for teaching us how to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. God, I pray that we will take these scriptures and scriptures like them and be able to learn how to talk to people in a, a way that glorifies you and, and tell people about you in a way that brings them to know you more. Um, not just in a way that we're just giving them information, Lord but that we're actually bringing them into adoption, into being a part of your family, Lord. So I thank you for these gifts. I thank you for the opportunity that you've given me to teach these good people. And um, I pray that you will uh, bless the rest of this evening and help us to be glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, when you said, when you started talking about the Day of Atonement, yes. what were you, what got you into that? Was it a verse in 1 John? 
So yeah, he talks about the propitiation there. Um, yeah. So he's the propitiation of our sins. So he fulfilled all those things that they did on the day of atonement. Um, but also, I was saying that because, again, we were talking about a lot of people will try and say like we're all children of God, and Jesus died for the children of God. Therefore, everyone's going to heaven. You know, and non-Christians die, and their non-Christian family says, oh, they've gone to a a better place. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's not true. Mm-hmm. And so I want to be clear that Jesus, what Jesus did, he died for the sins of the whole world. But you're only covered by that. You're only that atoning sacrifice. You're only under that covering, right, if you have faith in Jesus. There is something that is required. Yeah, I was, I was reading the uh, MacArthur notes for that verse in First John, and it's like, this is a general term, not um, speaking of every single person of the whole world, but people from all, like you were saying, right. specific people from all places, like, because not everybody is saved, so how could Jesus be the propitiation for every single person? And but it, it doesn't like say me, person. Well, it, and yeah, <laughs> it was, but I was thinking about how, uh, I was you had a while ago where you are talking about how um, basically the idea of God can be the sacrifice for all people and be the covering for sin for all people, but people reject it. I mean, yeah. people who seem passively to not believe in God is an active rejection of the gift that he's offering. Right. So it's like... Yeah, Jesus said you're either for me or you're against me. Yeah. <laughs> There's no middle ground. And that's another reason that I brought that Day of Atonement up is because, again, people were like, I don't want to be a part of the Assembly of Israel. Okay, then you're not under the covering. Mm-hmm. Right. Because the Day of Atonement was for the assembly of Israel. If you don't want to assemble with us, you're not under that covering. Even if you're an Israelite. Even if you're an Israelite. So that's important. That's Mm -hmm. something to consider. And even more than that, it says that if a traveler is joining with you on the Day of Atonement, right? Because that happened. They They were going all over the place in those days. And so these foreigners, these travelers, people who weren't Jews would come and think, wow, you guys, I love your community. I love your God. I want to worship as you worship. I want to travel with you. And so it says in Leviticus that those traveling with you are also under that covering. They're also, their sins are forgiven and they are atoned for with that sacrifice because they're in the assembly of Israel. They are part of God's family in that moment. So that's why I brought that up because a lot of people try and say a lot of things, but it's pretty clear. Like, you look at the Day of Atonement and how Jesus fulfilled it and how it applies now. The atoning sacrifice was for anyone who wanted to assemble with Israel. Everyone. And it doesn't matter, oh, oh there's four more people, we got to get another goat. No, it was two goats, one to die and one to be the scapegoat. And it covered, no matter how big their group got, it covered the sins for all of them. It's the same with Jesus. He covers the sins of the entire world if they want to gather with him 